welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topics we'll be covering today are liver metastases, and we'll talk a little bit about liver surgery. So to start us off, let's talk about liver metastases. The liver is the commonest organ for metastatic disease in the body. Tumor cells spread to the liver by a couple of routes. Firstly, tumors in the gastrointestinal tract can spread to the liver via the portal circulation. And tumors can also spread to the liver from pretty much any site through the systemic arterial circulation. I just wanted to take a brief segue into something that we learn in med school, which is the pathophysiology or mechanisms of metastatic disease. Metastases of cancers is a multi-step process where the tumor cells basically have to gain a number of functions in order to be able to metastasize. The first of these is loss of cellular adhesion. And under normal circumstances, the epithelial cells are held in check by the constraints of these cell adhesion molecules and then also the barrier of the basement membrane and other internal and external homeostatic processes. So once cells lose these adhesion molecules, they then have increased invasiveness or ability to invade. They then have to intravasate and go into the circulation, either venous or arterial or lymphatic, and be able to survive in that new uh, circulation or environment. They then have to be able to extravasate out of that circulation system and survive and proliferate in a new site. So back to liver metastases. Liver metastases can be split up into colorectal liver metastases and non-colorectal liver metastases. I'm going to start first with colorectal liver metastases. Two-thirds of patients with colorectal cancer will develop distant metastases, and the liver is the most common site. Liver mets can be found synchronously at the diagnosis of colorectal cancer, and that happens about 20 to 25% of the time. And subsequently, or metachronously, 40% of patients will develop liver metastases. And about 20% of those who have liver mets will be candidates for resection. So how do we diagnose liver mets or colorectal liver mets? If you remember from our colorectal cancer podcast episode, we talk about surveillance of these patients. So patients will have a CEA blood test and usually a CT chest, abdomen and pelvis six monthly in the first year and then they'll spread out from there. And the reason we surveil these patients is because we want to identify early liver metastases while they still may be resectable. On CT scan, often liver mets are hypodense compared to the surrounding liver parenchyma. MRI is another modality that's used to investigate liver mets. MRI is often done once suspicious lesions are seen on a CT scan and is the best way to assess the liver and the resectability of the lesions. It also has better detection for smaller lesions, less than one centimeter in size. PET is another scan that may be done to assess liver mets. It isn't the best scan at 
looking at liver metastases, but it is good at looking for extrahepatic sites of disease, which is a factor that's important when you're considering whether or not you may refer a patient for resection of their liver mets. It's also useful to monitor response to any therapy or chemotherapy as it's both an anatomical and functional scan when combined with a CT and can be good to detect residual or recurrent disease. It's got poor sensitivity for lesions that are less than one centimetre in size. And if you've looked at a PET scan of a liver, it does have some background uptake. So that can hide metastases. I like to think of MRI and PET scan as complementary investigations. So for a patient where you're considering resection of liver tumours, an MRI gives you really good information about the liver and where the lesions are and their relationship to other anatomical structures. And then a PET scan is really good at looking elsewhere for lesions that may be extra hepatic. Typically, imaging findings are sufficient to diagnose recurrent cancer or colorectal liver mets, and usually a biopsy is not required. A combination of the clinical history and history of the cancer, the imaging findings, and also sometimes the CEA level typically are enough to make the diagnosis. Saying that, though, if a patient has unresectable disease and the oncologists are going to offer that patient palliative chemotherapy, they will definitely want a liver biopsy. Similar to what we talked about in the previous episodes, a liver biopsy does have a risk of seeding cancer cells. So you only want to do this if it's really necessary and if it's going to change your management. The other thing that I would definitely mention if you have a case in the exam where they're showing you a scan with liver metastases and a patient has a history of colorectal cancer is that you would do another colonoscopy if it's been more than a year since the last one. You would be doing this to rule out a local recurrence or a metachronous tumor. So let's move on now into talking about the management of colorectal liver metastases. So to start with, treatment can be considered as medical, surgical, and palliative. So let's start with medical treatment of colorectal liver mets. And when we're talking about medical treatment, we're talking about systemic chemotherapy. There are three main ways that colorectal liver mets may present. The first one is resectable metachronous colorectal liver metastases. So this is when you're following up a patient after their colorectal surgery and you find that they develop liver metastases. The second way is with unresectable metachronous colorectal liver mets. So again, you're following this patient up and they present with tumors in the liver that don't appear to be resectable. And the third is synchronous colorectal liver mets. Um, So patients who at the time of their diagnosis of their colorectal cancer have liver metastases, and these can be resectable or unresectable. So a couple of general comments about systemic chemotherapy in colorectal liver metastases. Chemotherapy allows assessment of tumor biology. So giving chemotherapy to patients with liver metastases allows you to assess their response to chemotherapy. And patients who respond are much more likely to have a good long-term outcome. In addition to that, about 15% of patients who are initially unresectable may be rendered resectable by chemotherapy and having a response to chemotherapy. There are a couple of concerns, though, with systemic chemotherapy and colorectal liver mets. 
The first is that patients may progress on chemotherapy and patients who were initially resectable may become unresectable. The argument against that is that these patients have a poor tumor biology. So it allows you to select those patients that would benefit most from liver surgery. The other important consideration is that neoadjuvant chemotherapy has some toxicities to the liver. So if you're considering operating on these patients, then you need to factor that into how much liver you need to leave behind to make sure that the patient has sufficient liver function in the future. The types of chemotherapy that patients may get is going to vary by institution, but at my hospital, often these patients will get Folfox or Folfiri or Zelox. Folfox is folinic acid, also known as leucovorin, plus fluorouracil or 5-FU and oxaliplatin. Folfiri is erinotecan plus leucovorin and short-term infusional fluorouracil or 5-FU. And Zelox is capsidabine and oxaliplatin. If patients have unresectable liver metastases, these regimes may be combined with bevacizumab, which is a VEGF inhibitor, or cetuximab, which is an epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitor, although this is a little bit controversial if they don't have unresectable disease, because although patients don't have as good a response, they can have complications from this treatment that may preclude them going on to have their surgery. So that's a little bit controversial. So going back to those three potential groups that we may come across with colorectal liver mets, in patients who have resectable metancranous colorectal liver metastases. Typically, you would give these patients about four cycles of chemotherapy with the aim to treat any occult metastatic disease or systemic disease, give you the opportunity to assess their tumor biology and response to treatment, and um, potentially improve their progression-free survival after surgery. Obviously, you need to consider the fact that they may progress on treatment and that they will have some liver damage from the treatment, but this would be pretty standard of care in my experience. For patients with unresectable metachronous liver metastases, you would definitely give these patients chemotherapy with the aim to try to downstage the tumor and make it resectable, which will only happen about 15% of the time. Often these patients will require more rounds of chemotherapy, and this will increase the liver toxicity related to treatment. The last group is the one where the most confusion exists around what you should do. This is the group of patients presenting with synchronous colorectal liver metastases. So they have liver mets at the time of diagnosis. From my reading, I think the reason this group is so difficult or controversial is because it really depends on a number of factors. So both whether or not the primary is symptomatic, the number and type of metastases and whether they're just in the liver or whether they're elsewhere, and also the patient's age and other comorbidities. The other thing that we haven't touched on yet in this episode that needs to be considered is whether or not the primary is a colon cancer or a rectal cancer, because obviously rectal cancer, you usually would treat these with upfront chemoradiotherapy, especially if they have evidence of metastatic disease. And if it's a colon cancer, these patients, unless they have a locally advanced tumor, often go straight to surgery. So that puts an entire other layer of uh, consideration into the decision-making. In general, I think if patients have presented with a colorectal cancer and 
liver metastases that are unresectable, it's probably the easier decision-making process to talk about. These patients are going to need systemic treatment up front to treat their systemic disease and potentially make them resectable and try to downstage the tumour. Patients who present with a colon cancer and resectable liver metastases, the timing and order of what you would do is a bit controversial. So the options include chemotherapy, colon surgery, or liver surgery. And there's not ever been a randomized trial that looks at the sequence or timing of the different resections. In general, I think it's probably safe to say that you would give some upfront chemotherapy in order to assess tumor biology and treat any micrometastatic disease. And then whether to operate on the liver first or the colon first depends on a few factors. In general, it depends a little bit on what is going to be the least morbid of the operations. So um, in a recent shoot, one of the bosses was saying that often the colon surgery is the most morbid. So if they have limited liver disease and it's going to be a quick operation with a fast recovery and they're more likely to then progress to have their colon tumor out, that's probably better than taking out the colon cancer and the patient having a protracted recovery or complications and then potentially progressing in the meantime in the liver or the metastatic disease. But definitely this decision-making is going to need to be discussed at an MDT and we'll have to take into consideration all of those factors. So the next treatment modality I wanted to talk about was liver resection for colorectal liver metastases. The principles we talk about here will also cross over to any of the non-colorectal liver metastases that you might consider for resection that we will talk about later in this episode. So resection of colorectal liver mets has become more and more common in the last 10 years or so after retrospective data showed that there was a potential survival advantage to resection of colorectal liver mets. There's a couple of key principles with resection of colorectal liver mets. And the first one of these is that patient selection is really important and is associated with the best long-term outcomes. So the three things you want to consider are one, patient factors. So you want to make sure that you have a patient that's medically well enough to have this sort of surgery and that they have a good functional status. Number two, you want to think about tumor factors. So what is the extent of disease? What is the tumor biology? So what has the response been to any chemotherapy that they've been given? And also if there's any extra hepatic metastatic disease. And the third thing to consider is anatomical factors. So if you're going to do a resection for colorectal liver met, you need to be able to aim for an R0 resection. And you want to leave at least two contiguous liver segments with preserved inflow and outflow. And you want to be considering the future or functional residual liver volume or future liver remnant and making sure that the liver that you're leaving behind is going to be sufficient to function to keep the patient alive because there's no point doing a fantastic resection and then the patient goes into hepatic failure. So according to the AHPBA, consideration of colorectal liver metastases resection is considered if you can achieve an R0 resection, the predicted future liver remnant function is adequate if extrahepatic sites of disease are controllable. And this includes with selected resections, such as um, wedge resections of the lung, for example, 
or if they've shown long-term oncological control with chemotherapy, and also that the primary tumour is able to be resected for a cure. It used to be that the presence of extrahepatic disease was an absolute contraindication to liver resection, but now as long as you can achieve an R-naught resection of both intrahepatic and extrahepatic disease and they have good tumour biology, then it's not considered a contraindication anymore. In terms of types of resection, resections can be anatomical in the liver segments or sections that we've talked about previously, or can be non-anatomical or parenchymal sparing resections. But as long as you're getting a clear margin, that's totally fine. The other thing is that you can combine resections with other type of tumor destructive procedures, such as radiofrequency, microwave or cryoablation, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the sort of palliative treatment setting. But these can destroy smaller tumors and be used in conjunction with resection. So I just wanted to take a little bit of a segue into how you can determine that the future liver remnant you're leaving behind is going to be adequate. The key is that the liver function post-resection depends on both the quantity, so the amount of liver you're leaving behind, as well as the quality of the liver that you're leaving behind. So if a patient has normal liver function, normal liver parenchyma, you can leave as low as 20 to 25% of the total volume of the liver behind, and a patient should hopefully get away without having liver failure. Saying that though, if the liver parenchyma that you're starting with has damage, and that can be because of previous heavy alcohol intake, hepatitis, known cirrhosis, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, as well as those chemotherapy-related liver injury that we talked about, then you may need to leave more liver in place in order for these patients not to end up with liver failure. And probably for a safe hepatectomy, you need to be leaving at least 30 to 40% if they've had just pre-op chemotherapy and probably 40 to 50% for those with known cirrhosis or chronic liver disease. It's interesting just briefly to talk about what the chemotherapy actually does to the liver. And there's three main things. The first is that you can get sinusoidal obstruction syndrome and you can see that on the outside of the liver where it looks quite mottled when you're looking at it post-chemotherapy. It can also cause steatosis and you can get chemotherapy-associated steatohepatitis. And this makes the liver more friable, maybe quite hemorrhagic looking and this makes parenchymal dissection and getting hemostasis during surgery more difficult as well, which is pretty interesting to know. So in terms of the quality of the liver, we've talked about some of the risk factors that can impact on the quality of the liver and how much you have to leave behind. There's not really a great test for how much you should leave behind and how much damage there is to the liver. It's sort of a clinical diagnosis. Obviously, you can do a child pure or a MELD score, although these aren't really sensitive enough to assess for just background liver dysfunction that isn't impacting on the overall function of the liver before you actually remove some of the liver. But obviously, if patients have a child pure B or C or a MELD more than eight, then you should be pretty cautious about um, any sort of resection on the liver. There's a number of functional assessments that can be done to look at how the liver is functioning, although I've never really seen these in clinical practice. I think they're more done from a a research point of view. And this includes looking at the clearance of um, endocyanin green, which is metabolized by the liver. 
They can also do hepatobiliary scintigraphy, which is where they give a couple of technetium-99 labelled agents that either bind to hepatocyte receptors or are metabolised in the liver. And if there's poor uptake of these, then they that indicates liver dysfunction. They can also do an MRI with a special type of contrast that's taken up and cleared by hepatocytes. And this if it's poorly uptaken, can indicate that there's background liver dysfunction. Um, And then other things like uh, transient elastography, which is looking at the fibrosis score of the liver, can also be done. But looking at the research for these, it doesn't look like they're very well correlated with potential post-resection clinical outcomes. And again, I haven't really seen these used in clinical practice. I think it's more a clinical assessment and overall assessment of the risk and the potential damage that would feed into the decision about how much liver you need to leave behind. So I mentioned earlier that it's both the quality and the quantity of liver that you're leaving behind. So how do you actually assess the amount of liver that you might be leaving behind? This is usually done with a volumetric assessment of the future liver remnant and usually is done using a CT or MRI. Typically, the radiologist will do this for you, but there are free programs and you can upload the CT or the MRI scan into the program. And you basically manually outline or plot the points around the picture of the outline of the liver in multiple planes, and then the software calculates the volume. A potential issue with this is that you're obviously including the tumor in the total liver volume that you're calculating. So that needs to be considered, especially if the tumor is very large. And then basically what you do is you plot, again, the liver volume you think you're going to be leaving behind based on your resection line for the operation you're planning on doing. And this will give you the future liver remnant volume. And then you can calculate as a percentage what percentage you're going to be leaving behind. Calculating the volume of liver that you're leaving behind is important, firstly, to make sure you don't end up with the patient in liver failure after surgery, but also because there are a couple of techniques that can be used to improve the future liver remnant size. So this includes portal vein embolization and also ALPS, which stands for Associating Liver Partition and Portal Vein Ligation for Staged Hepatectomy. So first I'll talk about portal vein embolization. Portal vein embolization is usually done as an interventional radiological procedure, but can also be done surgically and basically involves ligation of the portal vein to the area of the liver that has the tumor in it. This procedure then results in hypertrophy of the other part of the liver, which is the bit that you're hoping to leave behind. So it's usually done four to six weeks preoperatively, and you want to avoid doing it very far in advance because obviously the tumor can potentially progress in that time period. Um, And basically, you would then repeat your imaging at two to six weeks following the portal vein embolization and then recalculate the future liver remnant volume. This procedure is often done when you are doing a right-sided resection, so either a right hemihepatectomy or an extended right hemihepatectomy, because you're leaving behind the left side of the liver, which is much smaller. And so, for example, if you were planning on doing an extended right hemihepatectomy, you would embolize the portal vein to the right side of the liver and then hopefully have increase in the size of the residual left side of the liver before surgery. The other interesting thing about portal vein embolization is that it also provides you with a functional assessment of the liver. 
because you can look at the growth rate of the future liver remnant after portal vein embolization. And if it doesn't grow or it doesn't grow very quickly, then you can be suspicious that the underlying liver is not healthy or there may be some underlying liver disease that you weren't aware of. And there's some calculations you can do about the kinetic growth rate of the liver. So you want the growth rate to be more than 2% per week. And if it's less than 2% per week, then this is associated with higher rates of post-op liver failure. The other procedure is the ALPS procedure. And I haven't ever seen this done in clinical practice. And in acute, they said that this isn't done very commonly. So just briefly, it involves a staged procedure. So in the first stage of the procedure, the surgeon removes smaller tumors from the smaller lobe of the liver, usually the left lobe, and then actually physically separates the left lobe of the liver, parenchyma, from the right lobe. And this is combined with embolization or tying off the right portal vein, so to the other side of the liver. This means that the left side of the liver actually gets much bigger very quickly. And so within 7 to 10 days, you'll see that the left side of the liver is much larger. And so you can then go on to perform the formal resection of that right side of the liver even within sort of a week to two weeks after the initial procedure. So our curriculum talks about improving future liver remnant and also assessment of the future liver remnant. And it also talks about prevention of postoperative liver failure. So I've talked a little bit about making sure you leave enough liver, but just briefly, there are some peri and intraoperative events that can affect the liver function after surgery. So the first thing is that preoperative fasting can impair the liver's ability to defend itself against injury. So an ERAS protocol um, is something that could be considered to improve patients' ability to deal with liver dysfunction. And the second thing to talk about is oxidative stress and reperfusion injury. So often with liver surgery, and I'll talk about this in a minute, we use a Pringles maneuver, which cuts off the inflow to the liver. In healthy livers, this can be quite helpful and can help um, and precondition the liver to um, actually improve and to regenerate. But in patients where the defensive mechanisms are deficient, so if they have underlying liver dysfunction, then this ischemia reperfusion can damage the liver. So making sure that you only use a Pringles for as long as is actually required and making sure that you intermittently give the liver breaks from the Pringles maneuver if it's been a long time is something to consider intraoperatively. The last intraoperative risk factor that's associated with post-surgical liver failure is related to blood loss. So minimizing the blood loss is important as well as avoiding blood transfusions if you can at all do that. And also close attention to hemostasis to avoid postoperative hemorrhage are important considerations to reduce the risk of liver failure after surgery. There's a couple of postoperative things as well to consider when talking about liver failure. The first one is early recognition and treatment of postoperative hemorrhage, which again will increase the risk of liver failure. The second is early recognition and treatment of biliary obstruction or leak because obviously if you have a residual liver that's leaking bile or um, has a blocked biliary drainage then that's going to affect its function and the last one is recognizing an early treatment of intra-abdominal infection because post-operative sepsis also reduces the liver's ability to function and regenerate after surgery. 
It's also important, especially if patients have had major resections, that all of the things we usually do for post-operative patients are maximized. So patients should be cared for in a high dependency unit and adequate blood pressure and oxygenation should be maintained because these are obviously going to be important in perfusing and encouraging the residual liver to function well. Patients should also be well resuscitated with a good urine output. The liver function should be monitored. And if patients need supplemental um, nutrition, such as oral supplements, enteral feeding or TPN, then adequate nutrition is also a really important thing to consider and act on early. The other thing I wanted to talk about was how do we actually diagnose liver failure after surgery? Most of these patients will end up with a blip in their liver function tests. The International Study Group of Liver Surgery has a consensus definition, which basically is a postoperatively acquired deterioration in the ability of the liver to maintain its synthetic excretory and detoxifying functions. And this is found if the INR is increased or the patient has elevated bilirubin on or after post-operative day five. So day five is pretty late to be knowing that your patient has liver failure and you may have missed the boat. So that's why the pre-op planning and prevention by making sure you're leaving sufficient liver, managing any potential risk factors intraoperatively and maximizing the patient's post-operative care are all really important to try to avoid liver failure after surgery. So the last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of liver surgery are the principles of liver surgery. I'm going to talk about mobilization, inflow control, outflow control, maintenance of low CVP and parenchymal transection. So mobilization of the liver essentially has to do with dividing the peritoneal attachments. So it depends a little bit on which part of the liver you're actually going to be removing, but you may need to divide the left or right triangular ligaments and you may need to extend that dissection along the coronary ligaments and you may need to also divide the falciform ligament. You need to free the liver from the diaphragm and also often you need to mobilize the liver off the IVC and this will enable you to gain outflow control. First, let's talk about inflow control though. So inflow to the liver is essentially the portal vein and the hepatic artery, and these travel in the free edge of the lesser omentum and can be controlled with a Pringles maneuver. A Pringles maneuver can be performed by creating an opening in the pars flaccida lateral to the portal triad and passing a piece of nylon tape or umbilical tape through this opening and then through the foramen of Winslow to wrap around or behind the inflow to the liver. Then use a crochet hook to pass it through a piece of plastic tubing, sometimes just a small piece of a small chest tube. And then this can be intermittently clamped down using an artery um, in order to gain control. Also, you can individually dissect out the artery and the vein and use vessel loops to uh, pass around these and to control the inflow as well. A Pringles maneuver should be left on for only 10 to 15 minutes and then taken off for five minutes, so intermittently used to control the inflow. Obviously, if you're doing an anatomical resection, you'll also need to dissect the liver hilum out in order to gain control of the portal vein and hepatic artery that's heading to the hemi liver that you will be resecting. 
In terms of outflow control, this relates to control of the hepatic vein, which is usually divided extrahepatically prior to its insertion into the inferior vena cava. This is where mobilization of the liver is really important in order to get access to these short hepatic veins as they're heading into the IVC. It's also important to be aware that the caudate lobe will have a number of small vessels that go directly into the inferior vena cava and these may need to be divided separately. The other thing that helps with outflow control is reducing the central venous pressure because the hepatic veins are valveless and so blood will flow backwards from these. Low central venous pressure is mostly managed by the anaesthetist. They use a combination of methods in order to keep the CVP low. So they don't use a lot of fluids and they may use diuretics. They often don't use any PEEP with the ventilator. They may use GTN or an epidural in order to um, increase the total venous volume or venodilate. And they may use other medications to achieve this as well. Once the resection is complete, they quickly increase the CVP as obviously uh, this can cause a lot of trouble with blood pressure in the initial aspects of the operation. So they'll try to restore volume once the resection is complete. And then the last thing I wanted to mention was techniques for parenchymal transection. There's a variety of techniques that are used to basically separate the soft liver parenchyma from the vascular and ductal structures, which are then identified and secured. So some previous techniques include finger fracture, where you basically uh, push away the liver parenchyma to leave the vessels um, on view, which you can then secure with other techniques. You can use a clamp or crushing clamp. The CUSA, which is Cavitron Ultrasonic Surgical Aspiration, which is a ultrasonic dissector that basically um, destroys and then uh, sucks up the liver parenchyma, leaving the vessels and ductal structures uh, behind for you to secure. You can use harmonic scalpels or ligature um, and also radio frequency ablation probes. I think the choice of parenchymal transection technique is probably surgeon dependent and also equipment dependent. So if you don't have a cooser at your hospital, obviously you can't use that. Um, but I've seen a combination of these techniques used. So to finish off our discussion about colorectal liver metastases, some factors that determine a patient will have a poorer prognosis include the presence of extrahepatic metastases, but as we talked about, that isn't a contraindication to liver surgery. If the patient has a synchronous presentation, if there's a large number of tumors that are bilobar, if the CEA is more than 200 if the size of the largest tumor is more than five centimeters, and if there's a positive resection margin, then these are all poor prognostic signs. And in fact, about 80% of patients will have recurrent disease. But the goal of liver surgery is not necessarily to cure the patient, although that would be nice, but to improve their survival. Due to these high rates of recurrence, patients do need to be surveilled after surgery. And this is in our curriculum, what the post-treatment surveillance should be. The idea being that you want to identify recurrences early while they still may be resectable. So patients should have a clinical examination, a CEA blood test, and a CT chest abdo pelvis every three to six months for the first two years, and then every six months for up to five years. 
After a section of colorectal liver metastases, the evidence for adjuvant chemotherapy is not great. From my experience in the MDT, some patients where it's considered they've had a complete uh, resection of their disease may not have adjuvant treatment and may just be surveilled. But other patients with high-risk disease or if they've got um, poor response to chemotherapy on their final resection specimen or not clear margins, for example, they may be offered adjuvant treatment. I'm not going to go into much detail, but in our HCC episode, we talked about some specific targeted liver metastases or liver tumor treatments, such as transarterial chemoembolization, radiofrequency or microwave ablation, and even radiotherapy spheres being inserted into the liver. All of these treatments are potential options for liver metastases as well. External beam radiotherapy is also potentially an option, but often the radiotherapy will damage the surrounding liver parenchyma. So I haven't seen this done much in practice. I'm going to finish off today's episode by talking a little bit about non-colorectal liver metastases. So there's a number of different tumors that can spread to the liver. Some of the more common ones include neuroendocrine tumors, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, GISTs, renal cell cancers, melanoma, other non-colorectal gastrointestinal tumors like esophagus, stomach, small bowel, pancreas, testicular cancer, lung cancer, adrenocortical tumors, and endometrial cancer. So when you're seeing a patient with what looks like a liver metastases, it's important to consider that wide list of differential diagnoses. Obviously, if they've got a known colorectal malignancy or a previous colorectal malignancy, that's going to be your number one thought. But also making sure if there is no primary that you're thinking about that wide list of differentials. You might be able to do some other tests to help you with the diagnosis. So obviously, a gastroscopy and colonoscopy can be helpful. Tumor markers such as CA125 if you're thinking an ovarian tumor or chromogranin A for neuroendocrine tumors. And also imaging may be helpful such as CT, MRI and PET scan like we talked about earlier in the episode. And also you want to make sure that you're staging that patient to determine whether there's any metastatic disease other than the liver. In general, the evidence for hepatectomy for non-colorectal liver metastases is all retrospective and quite limited. This means that the indications for hepatectomy are pretty unclear. Typically, it should only be considered if you have a curative intent of treatment um, or if you are looking at neuroendocrine tumors and you want to debulk them for symptoms and also for ovarian metastases, um, but usually only if they're on the outside of the liver, again, for debulking. There should also be definitely no other sites of metastatic disease and the patient should have a good performance status with evidence of good response to systemic treatment and also other systemic treatment options remaining. Factors that are associated with a longer or improved outcomes include a long disease-free interval between treatment of the primary tumor and the development of the liver mets, little or no extrahepatic disease, and well or moderately differentiated tumors. And patients who are older, who have extrahepatic disease, who aren't able to get an R0 resection or who require major hepatectomy to clear the liver tumors are likely to have a worse prognosis. 
I'm just going to go a little bit into each of the different types of non-colorectal liver tumors and what I understand the surgical role is in each of these. So for neuroendocrine tumors, surgery can be performed with curative intent and also to control symptoms and prolong survival. The choice of what treatment you offer and whether you might offer surgery depends a little bit on the underlying tumor biology and the pattern of metastatic spread. So neuroendocrine tumors are grade one and grade two tumors, and these are the ones where we would be talking about a metastatectomy. For grade three tumors or neuroendocrine carcinomas, no matter what you do, these patients have a poor survival, so you wouldn't be considering a resection in that group of patients. For patients with restricted metastases, so they might just be involving one lobe or a couple of adjacent segments, or if there's a dominant lesion, then you might consider a curative intent resection and you'd want to aim for an R-naught resection. And in those patients, they may have five-year survivals up to 85%, obviously um, combined with other types of systemic treatment, such as somatostatin analogs and some other targeted treatments that can be used for NETs. Um, even if you do an R1 or an R2 resection, so you're just sort of debulking the tumor, this can still be associated with good five-year survival rates, so up to 70 to 80% respectively. But you need to be able to reduce the volume of the tumor by at least 90%. And the other role that I've seen with neuroendocrine tumors are if patients have lots of symptoms. So if they have a tumor that's secreting vasoactive substances and they're getting a lot of flushing or diarrhea and that's not controlled with somatostatin analogs, then debulking the liver tumors may improve or palliate their symptoms. And I've definitely seen that done before. The other options for neuroendocrine tumors include local treatments such as radiofrequency ablation or TACE. And these patients also do have high rates of recurrence. So you want to be monitoring them after surgery with imaging as well as chromogranin A and urinary 5-HIAA levels. The next tumor I wanted to talk about is GIST. GIST has a targeted treatment, which are tyrosine kinase inhibitors or imatinib. And imatinib is first-line treatment for metastatic GIST. Saying that though, there is some evidence that imatinib plus surgery could improve five-year survival. So in selected circumstances, resection might be considered. For breast cancer, isolated liver mets are pretty rare, more likely to get metastases in other sites as well. And there's not great evidence that resection will improve overall survival. For ovarian cancer, cytoreduction surgery is um, one of the principles of treatment for ovarian cancer. And the idea is that you want to leave less than one centimeter of residual disease. And this can include hepatectomy. Stage three disease is where there's peritoneal deposits on the liver. And that is a more favorable situation to try to resect or debulk the involved tumors. But for patients with stage four disease where they have tumors within the liver, then there's less evidence that this makes a big impact on their overall survival. The next tumor to talk about is melanoma. With all of the new treatments for melanoma, I'm not really clear where liver resection falls in the treatment algorithm. I think if patients have liver mets, um, you'd be talking more about the systemic targeted treatments that we have now than liver resection. For the non-colorectal gastrointestinal tumor or adenocarcinoma sites, so esophagus, small bowel, and pancreas, there's pretty limited data that liver surgery or liver resection of metastases will make any difference to their overall survival. 
For gastric carcinoma, however, there is some data coming out of the Asian centers that suggests some improvements in survival, but I don't think I would be mentioning that in the exam. And then for the other types of tumors, so uh, urothelial cancers, lung cancer, adrenocortical and endometrial cancer, um, these have very limited data or evidence that surgery would make any difference and I wouldn't say would be routinely suggested. For testicular cancer, for specifically non-seminomatous cancers, if they don't completely respond to chemotherapy, there may be a role of liver resection in those cases. I hope I covered most of the curriculum points for that topic. It's quite a large one and it covers a number of concepts. I don't think we come across that commonly unless you're rotated to a hepatobiliary unit. I hope you found this episode useful. And as always, please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast to make it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>